2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois says. Thank you for listening. African-American newspapers came into existence before the Civil War as a medium to express abolitionist ideas. The first was established in 1827, and it was called Freedom's Journal. As black people migrated from rural life to urban centers, many cities with a significant African-American population in the early 20th century soon had African-American newspapers. In our city, that paper was the Atlanta Daily World. Later we listen back to a conversation about the history of the daily world with Alexis Scott, the granddaughter of its founder. And to honor the final day of Pride Month, we'll hear from two artists who remain a beacon for queer identity. The Indigo Girls, the music duo of Emily Saliers and Amy Ray are brilliant storytellers. And that gift is on vivid display in their new album, Look Long. We are fortunate to have them join us now via Zoom. Emily, Amy, welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thanks, Lois. You know we love
2: you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's just a privilege, especially as I know you are both taking the time to deal with homeschooling your kids and family life, along with very active music careers. This new album tells a story, beginning with bittersweet memories of childhood growing pains, to calls for social action, ultimately finding its way to understanding what once seemed irreconcilable emotions and experiences. I was wondering, were the songs in this album created as a set with a narrative in mind, or were they written independent from one another?
3: They were written independent from one another. I think um, you can say that Amy and I spend a lot of time together. So we're experiencing some of the same things at the same time, although we see through our unique and individual lens and write songs from that perspective, but also, you know, being at the same sort of age range in life and just reflecting on these things. But luckily all the songs when they were put together, Uh, had commonalities and uh, sort of threads that joined them all together, and then we thought that Look Long was the title that encapsulated some of that cohesion that happened, but it it wasn't a plan. They just, these were the songs that ended up together.
2: Well, it works beautifully as a narrative, and I guess having been together as a duo for what Thirty-one years now.
4: Yeah, let's see. Since night, well, we've <laughs> it might be
2: longer. I
4: mean, we started playing in in high school in at DeCab County, DeKalb County, at Shamrock High School at the time, and it was nineteen eighty.
2: Yeah, you go back as friends forty years. Um, The saying about finishing each other's sentences, I guess as friends and creatives, you do that with one another, and maybe that's why all the songs seem to fit together as a narrative. Amy, I read that the musical inspiration for the first song on the album came from an instrument you discovered in Emily's basement. Would you tell us about it? Yeah, I had
4: written this song and um, Emily and I had gotten together in her basement at her house to like start working on arrangements. And I saw this acoustic guitar sitting in the guitar stand that I had never seen. I thought I knew all Emily's instruments. And I just said, what is that? That looks like a great guitar. And it was a Martin, old Martin set up for a slide. So, for acoustic slide. And so she got it out and it became really the musical centerpiece of the song.
2: And that song opens the album.
4: Well, I had written Kicking, and it was really a song about growing up and spending time up in Hartwell, Georgia, Lake Hartwell near Livonia, and hanging out at this farmer's house. And he let us ride his horses, and we had dirt bikes up there, and, you know, just kind of the invasion of the suburbanites into the agricultural area to have our lake culture, (laughs) basically. But I, you know, Emily, I wanted it to be this kind of swampy southern, I don't know, kind of a romp, but with a slow groove. And so Emily and I were trying to figure out, you know, what should she play on guitar? You know, what instrument? And when we got together at her house, I saw this guitar I had never seen, but it had been set up to play slide guitar on. And I had never, I mean, I know most of Emily's guitar, so I, I was very surprised to see it. And the sound was so perfect for the song that it kind of helped me envision the whole thing and, and, you know, made the core, the centerpiece of the song acoustically. And then we ended up making sure we flew over with that. instrument. we didn't take many instruments to England with us to record with, because we wanted to save money, but we definitely took that one with us. Let's
2: talk about country radio. This song reveals a complex relationship with the genre of country music. Would you talk about the lyrics?
3: Well, I wrote country radio after I, I I spent a lot of time in Nashville. I like the drive um, from Atlanta to Nashville and back home. Always on the way back home, I listen to country music from the time I leave the city until the time I get back to Atlanta. And I love country music. I really, really love the voices of country singers. I love the well-crafted songs. But the truth is that those songs are written by men and women, you know, largely and primarily by men and women about the stories of men and women. And so I found myself wanting to live inside these songs, but I couldn't relate it to my own life because, you know, being queer separated me from that. And so I really got this wistful feeling inside sometimes as I listened to these songs and and couldn't fit my own story into them. And so I decided to uh, write a song about that feeling. And I put the character as a, a gay kid in a small town and described all of those feelings that I myself had.
5: I work at the mall food court And when I get home I fix something to eat Settle into my seat And turn on the country radio I know every word, to every song. And they make these lonely nights a little less long Cause then I'm under the stars, regular at the bar Got a perfect girl, I got a warning truck We go down to the river, and the moonlight is silver
2: sad to read that you have addressed self-homophobia in your own life. How is that evident in these lyrics?
3: Well, I think from my own experience, you know, I was not immune to societal voices saying you're a sinner. I didn't believe I was a sinner. I never had any relationship problems, my faith relationship or with my parents or my family, but The societal implications and loud voices that you're a sinner or you're not valid, you should be fired from your job, Um, you don't count as much, something's wrong with you, all those things, I was not ever strong enough to not take them in somehow into my psyche. I think a lot of queer people deal with this and it's gotten better through the years, but, you know, in the song, it talks about passing the, you see those placards and there's like little marquee. Things with messages in front of churches and I've seen ones that are totally homophobic and you sort of I drive by it and take that in and and that's included in the song and it's really it's about a person daydreaming that they're that boy about to get married or with the with the truck or with the pretty girl or they're that girl whose dream is coming true getting married or having this love relationship and So all those things are, it's very, very difficult was for me to overcome that self homophobia of you're not as valid a human being and your, the milestones in your life uh, don't count the same way they do for straight people. So obviously it's an illness that has to be healed and it takes time, but there is a lot of that in the song.
2: In fact, many of your songs deal with the acceptance of individuality in a world that celebrates conformity or demands it. What is another song on this album that illustrates that theme?
3: Well, the first song that came to mind was Muster, even though it's about those kids standing up against the gun reality in America and the the common Second Amendment raise the flag type argument.
4: Yeah, I guess, but like for personal conformity, maybe how the moon, you know, deals with trying to encourage everybody to have their own liberation and looking to the elders for that, looking to kids for that and just saying, you know, we all need to be free from our, whatever the chains are that bind us and, and celebrate ourselves and be liberated. I mean, you know, Emily and I, I think in our lyrics, you can probably find <laughs> examples of that in almost any song, because I think it's something that we, it's kind of a main agenda, if you will, for us, like is to encourage people to not worry about conforming in any way, you know, and not have to, you can be, you know, it doesn't, whatever your political persuasion is, whatever you are, you know, all the things that you make up who you are, just, Celebrate them and be yourself, and and respect yourself and respect other people, and that's how we get along in the world, you know. And I think we we encourage our audience to, you know, be themselves and be strong in that, and not, you know, just it's you know let this this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine. I mean that's a basic message. Yeah. You know I think a lot of our songs you can find little lyrics and here and there that that will say things like that because it's kind of a central idea with us.
2: You do it with so much grace. I mean, when you were talking about the suburbanites invading Lake Hartwell, you speak about being an interloper. And it shows such a depth of thought, even with people whom you not only see as very different from yourselves, but who may hold beliefs that are hurtful you you're always considering the other point of view
4: i mean i grew up in a family where that you had to do that because we in my extended family and and in my own family there were a lot of differences of you know of view about society and some of them were very conservative and so you know and growing up in the south i mean you always have to consider the other point of view because you you have you know it's a complex place and you don't want to lose your ability to talk to one another and to be neighbors and to love one another and you have to realize when you are an interloper in someone else's space and their way of life regardless of what you think of that way of life or what they think of yours the reality is they built a lot of lakes you know all over the united states when they dammed up a lot of rivers to make power and which could be a good thing but also those areas that were once, you know, these agricultural havens, and became sort of the playground of the of the wealthy. And so, yeah, I think about that, you know, and I mean, it's like the movie Deliverance. You know, it's it's a it's something you think about a lot. I think when you live
2: in an area like we do. We'll return with Amy Ray and Emily Saliers of the Indigo Girls after a quick break. I'm Lois Wright. Says thanks for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, the Indigo Girls. Their new album was released in May. The title is "Look Long," and the songs display a wide range of influences. The new album seamlessly integrates a number of genres into the style of folk rock music that we have loved, your fans have loved for many years now. Favorite flavor is particularly inventive in that regard. Were you consciously paying tribute to any particular styles, or did different influences just kind of bubble up as you were writing this
4: uh i think when i wrote when i wrote that song it was just kind of i was sitting with my kid in in our studio and we were jamming actually and that is kind of what came out of what we were doing Finished the song and was trying to think about production because Emily and I didn't have an arrangement for it. John Reynolds had created this beat that worked really well, and it immediately made me think of the B 52s. Um, <laughs> you know, because of that, I wanted it to be wacky, you know, because the message in it is kind of hardcore, and I wanted the music to feel kind of wacky and, you know, and celebratory, you know, and um, so I could have like lyrics sitting in it that were harder to think about. And um, definitely paying tipping the hat to B-52s, no, no doubt about it. I mean, what a great Georgia band. So, and they created their whole own style, you know? And so we definitely were tipping our hat to them.
2: Well, it is so much fun. The title song, Look Long, is beautifully sung. And the lyrics seem densely poetic a reference to Grandfather's Telescope, through the scope on starry nights we saw forever, and in the morning Florida's sun, I burned the grass with my magnifying glass. How did you decide that this would be the title song of the album?
3: Well... One of the hardest things about making an album is uh, naming it and we always make the decision in in the 11th hour, you know, but it's it's often quite handy to pick uh, the title of a song, at least it tells the story of that song and because given the fact that these are a cohesive bunch of songs, it it really, a- Amy thought about using that as the title, and it did have obviously so much to do with history and perspective and short term vision, long term vision, and things like that. So it was, uh, in the end, a fitting title.
5: Armageddon.
2: Beautiful. The text of many of your songs are especially meaningful in this new age of social distancing, life during pandemic. For example, Sorrow and Joy Are Not Oil and Water. Has anything about the album changed? Does anything land? differently for you as we've settled into this extraordinary new way of living?
3: It's a great question. I think sometimes it takes a while for the songs to have their lives and and you start to live into them, even if you've written them at a different point in time. And because I think that Amy and I write a lot about people and how we relate to each other and how important histories are and uh, communication and uh, the earth and things like that. It might be that any group of songs could could take its place during a pandemic and speak to it in some way, you know? It wasn't as if the songs were prescient in, in, in any way, I don't think, but sitting with them and, and living in them, I mean, sorrow and joy is definitely, I feel like right now, not only in this country, but globally, there's a collective Grieving, sadness, you know, tremendous grief over the loss of life and how things, some things have been irreparably changed.
5: We've had some good times. In photographs you see us laughing and carrying on. White shirts on the clothesline. And flags, where are the claims that we when we sank in the mire? Emotion suspended like stillness of birds on the wide.
3: and then along with that, finding everybody has their, you know, their hopeful spirits or their the ways that they've found things within their families or their chosen families or whatever it is. Uh that brings them hope and a little bit of joy. So I think holding darkness and light, which is, you know, a clunky way to put it, but it's what that song talks about, Sorrow and Joy. And I think that that's definitely something that's going on, um, obviously, during the time of the pandemic.
2: I understand that a movie is in the works. (laughs) Please tell us about the Indigo Girls documentary plans. Well so
4: far we we have so we have an an incredible group of people who approached us about making a documentary and we've you know had other people approach from time time and again and it's never felt right or not the right time or whatever but these folks were the producer is an old friend of ours and has made a lot of great films and the director made a great movie that won a lot of awards um, a couple of years ago at Sundance and other places. Um, she made a movie called On Her Shoulders, Alexandria Bombak, about a Yazidi woman and everything she went through. And so she wanted to be the director and, and writer and Jessica Devaney and Kathleen Haran as the producers. And then they have a great crew. And we just, we don't know what it's about. We basically just said like, yeah, we can do this, but we don't want it to focus just on us. We want to kind of try to focus it on the context and our fans and kind of the communities around us. And I, th- I don't know if they're really taking that to heart or not, but they're working on it and they've been filming things off and on for a couple of years and, or like a year and a half, but I'm not sure what's going on now because you know, the pan they were going to be on tour with us filming our tour. Mm-hmm. And, um, now this, this is happening and we haven't really done anything around the pandemic and what's going on right now. So I'm not sure what they're thinking that we, we're due to have a meeting soon, but, um, the, the director has been, I think, holed up in like a closet editing the movie for about three months or something to see what she has so
2: far. I just want to end by thanking you and to borrow a phrase and turn it around. You <laughs> could not get any closer to Fine. I think you two are way beyond Fine. You're amazing. Emily Sellier's, Amy Ray, thank you so very much.
4: Thank you, Lois. We
2: we love we really love you so much. We're big fans of yours. I can't wait to give you both a hug when we can do it without seeing each other on screens. Same here. Emily Saliers and Amy Ray, the Indigo Girls, their new album "Look Long," is available now. This is W-A-B-E Atlanta. The Atlanta Daily World is the nation's oldest daily African-American newspaper. Alexis Scott is the granddaughter of its founder and served as longtime publisher of the paper. She joined me a few years back to talk about the history and importance of the Atlanta Daily World.
0: It's credited to my grandfather who sort of credits it to someone else who was uh, the banker at Citizens Trust Bank, which then was the black bank in Atlanta, the only black bank, it started in 1921. And he actually intended to do a business directory. He didn't have a plan to do a, a newspaper. He had done a business directory in Jacksonville, Florida in 1927. And Atlanta was his next stop. He was familiar with Atlanta because he had gone here to Morehouse College and thought it would be a great place to, to launch the second business directory and then do so around the entire southeast so that black people would be able to know who they could do business with and have everybody do better. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the banker said, you should start a newspaper here in Atlanta. At the time, the only other black newspaper was the Atlanta Independent, which published irregularly, and it was also a part of the Odd Fellows fraternal organization. So it mostly dealt with their concerns and considerations, rather than the general public.
2: What, what were those? I've seen the building, I know the it's the an historic it, it, site.
0: Well, the Odd Fellows is a fraternal organization, it's a national organization. And it was one of the first that reached out to Blacks to become a a participant. It was started, of course, in the Northeast. (laughs) But um, in Atlanta, they had a a chapter of Odd Fellows and uh, they built the building and they had started a publication called the Atlanta Independent. But it didn't, of course, publish on a regular basis. So my grandfather was encouraged to start the paper and he did, he launched it in August uh, 1928 as a weekly and it was called The Atlanta World, and he began to get very, uh, I guess, aggressive about growing it, and he published twice a week, then three times a week. He also started a Birmingham World, a Memphis World, and a Chattanooga World, and so he really thought he could see himself doing a chain of of newspapers, and in fact, eventually was credited uh, with starting a chain publication. The... Sigma Delta Chi recognized the paper in 1980 as the first business to start uh, chain syndication, newspaper syndication, black or white. So and he was pretty ambitious and pretty active. I would say. And uh, once he started the paper, he wanted to make sure that he would have a professional to make it a daily a professional editor. So he went to Chicago, which at the time was the home of the Associated Negro Press, which was this like the wire service for black newspapers, and also was the home of the Chicago Defender, which had been started in 1905. So there was lots of activity and lots mm-hmm. of people who were working in the business in the black press in Chicago. And there had been an effort to start a daily in Chicago as well, but it was not sustainable. They, I think they lasted about two or three months, and they just couldn't keep it going. But he was encouraged to do it. And so he went to Chicago to find an editor, and he found a former editor of the Associated Negro Press, Frank Marshall Davis, who had been who was now at a paper in Gary nearby. So he went to him and he said, I need you to come to Atlanta and help me turn this paper into a daily. And Frank was very uh, reluctant because he had never been south. He'd grown up in Kansas and stayed in Chicago. And he was reluctant to come to the segregated Jim Crow south. But my grandfather convinced him by telling him he would pay him $25 a week and at 35, if it worked out in after a couple of months, and he was making 15 <laughs> where he was. So that convinced him to try it. And he came to Atlanta with my grandfather, and that was in 1931. And in 1932, March 12th, I believe, that's when they launched The Daily and became publishing every day. So it's pretty amazing that they were able to do that. It
2: really was. It <laughs> was just so ambitious of him. And I guess reflected his faith in the business community that there would be advertisers, because we know that was essential. Well,
0: it was essential, but for my grandfather, the essential piece was the circulation and distribution. And he had a, a series of, of paper boys, as they were called back then, and um, he would uh, publish the other newspapers, too. He encouraged other people to start publications in other cities, he was publishing 50 newspapers all across the country out of the plant down on Auburn Avenue at the press down there. And um, he, you know, encouraged them to sell the papers. And also when he printed the other papers, he s- sold them COD. He sent them out COD. So he got his money up front. So he had a very aggressive business acumen and concern about getting the dollars in. And they continued. And he also started a uh, magazine a uh, section called a rotogravure section that was largely p- pictures, and uh, he had like forty people working in the photo part of the business because it was uh, a difficult mechanical process to convert images into uh, what did they call woodcuts for sure. the printing press. So anyway, it was a lot of people involved back then, and uh, he went things went along really well until what nineteen thirty four. He was shot and killed. He had just returned from a trip to Havana, Cuba, where he was gonna look at going elsewhere. And he uh, was uh, coming home that night uh, after he returned and um, he was shot in the back on the front porch of his mm. home.
2: Any suspects?
0: Well, there was an inquest and the suspect was the brother in, his brother-in-law, who was the brother of his fourth wife, <laughs> my grandfather was 32 when he died, and he had just married his fourth wife. Oh, my. Right. My grandmother was his first wife and childhood sweetheart, and my father and his brother were the only two children. But um, unfortunately, they suspected the brother of his fourth wife, but there was no witness, and they never found the gun, so no one was ever convicted. Mm -hmm. It was a a terrible tragedy. And uh, Frank stayed for about another year or two, But it just wasn't the same without my grandfather, he said. And I learned this from reading his memoir, which was published posthumously for him back in 1987. And I only read it about three years ago. But Frank went back to Chicago and I learned so much about my grandfather from this book. He did a whole chapter on his experience in Atlanta and about my grandfather and what kind of, you know, energetic, talented, wild person he was. And... um, he went back to Chicago and he began writing poetry. And he started uh, participating in a writer's group with people like Langston Hughes, Frank Yerby, Gwendolyn Brooks, all the folks that you know emerged as part of the Harlem Renaissance. And um, there is an integrated group too. And there he met a young white woman who was a writer who was 18 years his junior. And they, they met and they eventually married and were there through World War II, but things were difficult for interracial couples, even in Chicago, and she convinced him that they should move to someplace else more hospitable and even leave the United States. And so they moved to Honolulu, to Hawaii, where everybody's colored, right? <laughs> and Isn't so...
2: everybody some color?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I think they had a, a different attitude about it. Um, and. Um, that, that even white is a color, as you point out. <laughs> and so um, they, you know, progressed. He continued to write poetry, he, and he also continued to do journalism in Honolulu. And he befriended this uh, white uh, veteran from World War II who had helped uh, uh, liberate one of the concentration camps. And he had a black grandson who had been abandoned by his father. Hmm. And so he befriended him, and he uh, Frank would... See each other, and he would see this this grandson. And then, I guess in two thousand and nine, that grandson was sworn in as the President of the United States. Isn't that amazing?
2: Yes, it is. <laughs> we' We've come a long way. and if you're just joining us, my guest is Alexis Scott. She is the granddaughter of the founder of the Atlanta World, which came became the Atlanta Daily World. What were the goals for the paper when it was founded and as it evolved?
0: Well, I think the primary goal was to inform, educate, entertain, and um, inspire its readers, uh, particularly during those days of Jim Crow, where black people were basically non-existent except as servants or criminals. And um, the paper sought to... uplift the community with positive stories or just stories, period, about people doing business, people uh, in churches, people engaged in the community. And that sort of remains today and And, and is still needed. (laughs) And yet,
2: um, at that time, when you talk about the majority of black people, you know, had difficulty with access to higher education, um, only the lowest paying jobs available for the most part, there was this flourishing, well-educated, and ambitious part of society that your parents, your grandparents were a part of along Auburn Avenue. And um, it was very much mission-driven for the paper, wasn't it, to to help inspire social mobility as well?
0: Absolutely. Um, there, The paper itself was part of this burgeoning uh, middle class that was the result of the schools in the Atlanta University Center that produced uh, ed- college-educated people who were professionals and doctors, lawyers, uh, preachers, teachers. And uh, that was a part of improving the life of the community and also fighting the system of Jim Crow. And uh, that was the whole point of, of having the newspaper so that people could know what was going on. And then by making it a daily, it made it even more timely. It was sort of like the CNN or the TV. Twenty-four-seven news cycle that we have today,
2: which could not have been easy. I mean, right—the um, kind of national stories that had to be covered. You mentioned the the wire service that,
0: right? You there were was a, part a, of. a wire service for black publications, but at the same time, the paper also subscribed to UPI back in the thirties and forties, so they got national and international stories as well. Particularly, uh, with a lot of emphasis on covering World War II. Um, I remember seeing some of the headlines about the Scottsboro Boys, which came mostly from the wire service, but also sometimes they got feeds from some of the other black publications in some of the places that were having problems. It must have
2: been grueling to report on lynchings, police brutality. I mean, I would think it was dangerous for the reporters themselves.
0: Oh, absolutely it was. Um, I remember one particular incident, which has still been an unsolved lynching in uh, Forsyth County, uh, uh, not Forsyth County, but Forsyth, Georgia, in Monroe County, uh, the lynching that happened in 1946 of the two couples. My dad went down there with um, a reporter, William Folks, to see what, you know, happened. And they took pictures, my dad took pictures of this kid who was one of the witnesses that they had beat up because they didn't want him to talk about what had happened. And, of course, that is another story that remains unsolved, another crime that has not been solved all these many years later.
2: Talk about bearing witness. Your father was one of the Tuskegee Airmen,
0: wasn't he? He was. He was sort of an honorary member in that he was studying at Tuskegee when the pilots were training, but he was studying chemistry and engineering. Uh, He was a part of the 183rd Engineer Combat Battalion, and their job was to repair roads and bridges and uh, seek uh, fresh water and stuff like that. Uh, But he was... As I said, he was studying at Tuskegee when the pilots were being trained at the same time. So uh, after he was out of the war, he became an active member of the Atlanta chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen. And he was part
2: of the American infantry that liberated Buchenwald,
0: wasn't he? He was. It was a pretty amazing, um, you know, most of the, the black units were still segregated. Well, not most, but all of them were segregated, and uh, the point I was making is that most of them did not see any fighting or activity, because they primarily were seen to be support units to do things like my father's unit, uh, or but not on the front lines. And it wasn't until the Battle of the Bulge near the end of the war that they were called up to, to help fight. And in fact, they didn't even get bullets until then. They were trained on how to use the guns, but they weren't given bullets to do it. So um, the, he ended up being a part of a reconnaissance unit that was sent out to uh, investigate this camp. And as it turns out, uh, the prisoners had actually liberated themselves. Uh, they were The Nazis saw the inn was here. This was in April of 1945, and many of the guards had fled, and then the prisoners sort of took over the camp. And my father was one of the first uh, American soldiers to get there to the camp, and he took pictures. He was a photographer and an archivist with his unit, and he took pictures there that uh, are very haunting and unbelievable, and he said it was just something that he could not believe he was actually witnessing. It was so horrible.
2: Why did the Daily World encounter criticism in the civil rights era? Uh,
0: That's an interesting conversation as well, and I have learned more about that uh, as time goes on, too. The uh, student movement in Atlanta uh, in 1960 was a direct action confrontation movement. My great-uncle C.A. was running the newspaper at the time. He took over when my grandfather was killed in 1934. He was a contemporary of Daddy King, and so he was considered the old guard. And their focus had been the court system. Mm -hmm. They had filed lawsuits or supported the filing of lawsuits to get equal pay, uh, voting rights, um, uh, public use of uh, public facilities like the golf courses and all this stuff and they thought that was the way to go. The other thing they were concerned about was the the youth themselves, college students, getting a, a prison record or a jail record that would prevent them from participating once the barriers did come down. So he was not supportive of the student movement, the direct action movement. In addition to what I found out too, I had a great conversation with Lonnie King a few years ago. Lonnie King was one of the leaders of the student movement, a Morehouse student at the time. He said that he went to see, CA called him in and asked him to stop doing it. And the reason was that his advertisers threatened to pull the advertising from the paper if he didn't stop, get them to stop. So CA was caught in a really tough place of trying to, you know, they had the same goals of of desegregation and equal rights, but the method is where they parted company. And um, And it cost him and cost everybody. Very understandable
2: in terms of the younger generation and the evolving attitudes. Mm-hmm. In the moment we have left, Alexis, I wanted to ask you, what is the role of a community-specific newspaper today? Is there still a need for one, for any community?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think so. It's To me, it's like a caucus voice. It's a, a, a a group that it can talk about what the issues are of a particular concern to that particular group and look at solutions, look at ways to fix things and speak to each other in a way that each of the member of the caucus group can understand and maybe the larger group may not. And so I think that's it's a useful, helpful way for the larger community to be supported.
2: Journalist Alexis Scott, speaking with me in 2017, she retired recently after 18 years as host of Fox 5 show about politics, The Georgia Gang. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Early in May, I had the pleasure of speaking with punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg. In addition to his songs, he writes books on politics and justice. Here he is on the power of music and social change.
1: Well, in order for accountability to happen, people have to be willing to call people out. And music has a role in that. But more importantly, I think, the currency of music, whether it's political music or pop music, any kind of music, the currency is empathy. That's what we're connecting with when a song moves us. We're very fortunate if we're moved by music because we're able to feel empathy for emotions and for individuals, perhaps, that we've never met, emotions that we've never experienced ourselves. That's the power that music has. And at the moment, we live in a time where empathy is derided. People who express compassion for others are dismissed as being politically correct. And political correctness doesn't even exist. It's a trope. It's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. So by bringing people together, by listening to music, by feeling empathy together, we begin to push back against those people who would divide us, those people who would single out individuals for blame. Empathy music brings us together, and that's the role it plays. It doesn't have the agency to actually make change. Unfortunately, that's been my experience, but it is possible to bring people together.
2: Which of your songs do you think demonstrate those ideas most vividly, Billy?
1: I have a song called There is Power in a Union, which talks about organising in the workplace for rights, for wages, for people being able to hold the management accountable in the workplace. We must fight for From the cities and the farmlands To trenches full of mud. wars Why's been the wise, wiser The union forever
5: Defending our rights with
1: the I think this is absolutely crucial Because accountability to me is The, the base of all great social movements You know, if you look in the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was about accountability. But if you look at the frontline struggles in the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the environment, the school strikers, they're all attempts to hold those in power to account. They don't have a clear connection, but the thing that does connect them all is accountability. So this issue of accountability, it's not not a left or right issue. It's a, a universal idea. And, and we, on the, we on the left have to be as accountable as anybody else.
2: Music legend Billy Bragg speaking with me in early May. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with author Zoe Fishman, her novel Invisible as Air just won the award for Best Literary Fiction from the Georgia Writers Association. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Special thanks this week to Stephen Key. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Wrights. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S- R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for
0: NPR.